Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Paganini. Hey, Chuck. Good to be back again. Yeah, I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Um, and this week, we're talking to uh, Merrick Ponty. Did I, did I get close on your name? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure, uh, I'm Angular developer from Bratislava. Basically, I started my career as a designer, but later on I realized that it wasn't uh, as creative as I thought. So I became more and more uh, into coding, and uh, I, I became a big fan of front-end and Angular. But also, I do a little bit of Node.js and, and Python and things like this. But yeah. Very cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Yeah, we ran across your uh, article about Angular standalone components um, and, and some of the things that you had there around uh, the architecture of the app and, and stuff like that. Um, do you want to kind of give us the the high level view on what standalone components are and how they work, just for people who are newer and, and may not know what they are? Ah, oh, sure, sure. So uh, this is this is a, a little bit uh, longer topic, but the the thing is that uh, until recently, Angular uh, had everything wrapped up into modules. So it means that you had one page up divided into a couple of feature module. And in the in the highest mm -hmm. level of uh, the Angular app, you had a router, and that router lazy loaded each each model. So we went if you went to a specific route, for example, home or dashboard, it got the module dashboard. But then the trouble was that if the dashboard was big, you still got uh, that big thing uh, lazy um, loaded. And if you wanted to have some uh, some other division, you needed to create another submodule of that feature module and lazy load it to submodules. And there was another issue that if you had a shared module of some directives, utilities, helper functions, and so on, and you imported that shared module into some feature module, we imported basically the whole bucket of functionality, even though you used only only one method. And then you had a question whether, uh, like, if if you if you were about to write a new directive, you, uh, which would be in a shared directory, for example, you had a question whether you will uh, import it into the shared model, or create some small sub module which would be imported in some feature module. And basically, with standalone components, we get rid of this, uh, how to say it, uh, of this robust thinking. But uh, but uh, and, and it allow, allows us to have uh, a, a lot a better granularity, basically. But mm -hmm. uh, just let me go a little bit back in the history, how this modularity started. 
It was, I think, 2012 or 11 when Angular was created. And uh, up until this time, there wasn't really, uh, there, there was only two or three front-end frameworks, frameworks, and none of them was designed, or, or we really didn't know that we will do all application in browser. And later, we didn't know that we will use Angular for mobiles and then for everything. So it was a, a little bit different kind of thinking. And in that case, module made, made sense because the thinking behind the models was that it won't be as big. There, it will be like granularized. And, and yeah, it, it was a little bit thinking like in backend. But then React came with, uh, with sort of better modularity. And mm-hmm. and uh, Angular team realized it. I think it was version eight, but it was very hard to do this uh, separation in in the engine. So now I think now now is the time. <laughs> so it, it sounds like there's, I guess, more to the architecture uh, discussion here than. Um, because when I when I initially started thinking about like standalone components versus um, I guess like a fully blown angular app um, you know I was just thinking okay you know this is just you know you know feature a feature B but it, but it's not there's more to it than that so so yeah so how do you start making the decision hey I need a standalone component here versus um, you know building in a full uh, yeah I guess a, a, an app that that I would normally think of that Angular does. Uh, but, yeah, so it's it's very easy. You should uh, you should either decide at the beginning uh, when you are starting create the app, mm-hmm. or uh, when you if you want to refactor it, you you need to think that you need to refactor everything. Luckily, it is quite easy to refactor it to uh, to standalone architecture, but. How you should think about it? Well, the first thing is you have to realize if your team is flexible. Like if you have three teams and uh, mm-hmm. you are in some robust uh, corporation and everything needs to be approved by management and you are not able to explain the benefits of transforming to standalone components, I think this situation can be hard. <laughs> then I would rather continue with models mm-hmm. and, and maybe in three years start talking about it. But that, this I can imagine that this, that could be trouble because uh, it will it will take some time to transform it. But if you are starting an app from scratch, I would recommend using the standalone uh, architecture. It's, it has really a lot of, uh, lot of benefits and I would say that the two biggest benefits besides others are uh, is the granularity and also the lazy loading because each component can be now uh, lazy loaded in, in a router level. And also we have standalone directives and uh, pipes. So the, and, and also uh, the app component, which is now in the a, in a highest part of the, uh, of the app, can be standalone as well. And that app component will bootstrap the application. One thing that I thought was interesting um, that made me click on your argument, and I think it, it would be beneficial to clarify that to the audience, is 
even before we had standalone components, correct me if I'm wrong, even before we could already benefit from the most important advice that you're giving him here, because you're actually giving two advices. One is to prefer standalone components, standalone uh, pipes and et cetera, over ng-modularized components. But the other more important advice mm -hmm. is that your whole application should not be in a single module. So for example, or, or should, you should not have many things defined in a feature module or any other kind of module. So even before we had standalone components in Angular, so for everyone that is running Angular 13 or before, mm -hmm. they can already benefit from the structure by having modules that define a single component, such as what Angular Material used to do, right? So you have a, a module just to import yes. and define a single component. Uh, and that is the most beneficial advice here because that will later make it easy to isolate those things in even other um, libraries if you want to isolate and reuse. That's right? Exactly. Exactly. Basically, uh, uh, basically, before I start to talk about it, we need to, uh, we need to say that everything is about good software. Yeah? If you have something written in a, in a very spaghetti mode, each change or each thing which you want to change is hard and difficult. And sometimes you, you can be in a decision whether whether this this wrong code base shouldn't be done from scratch, because there are some situations where refactoring could take actually longer than rewriting it. And uh, to this is what we are talking today is is basically uh, is basically uh, to, Oh, those points are about collaboration. So if the, if you are five or more developers, if you want to have a sustainable code base, which would be possible to maintain even after 10 years from now on, those are, let's say, some, some basic things. Yeah. Because, um, because, of course, we can be very strict. We can have 80% code coverage, for example. We can have... Like that, there are a lot of lot of things which which can be done, but this is uh, this archi architectural point of view is just like the higher overview on the app, how to make it maintainable. I would say it. So, uh, from like my, my experience is that uh, I was working on on a lot of three to four month projects, beside my main work, and this is where I learned some of the some of the most practical things from the architecture points. And the first thing is that on 50% of projects, after some time, they realize that, ah, we want to have another app and another app, and we want to have it together. Basically, in some time, they realize that maybe we should have a monorepo or we should think about micro-app architecture. And if you want to have a monorepo or um, micro-app architecture, uh, you, you need to copy basically uh, some of the common models into libraries and then having some separately separate ap applications which are connected in some common dashboard or, or something like this. Yeah, now imagine a situation that uh, you are starting an app and when you think about this upfront, then this this decision to to 
to go, to uh, bring your monorep or micro app is very easy because you just copy your models into libraries and that's it. You know, <laughs> it it maybe work for two to three days. It's not a work for half a year then. Yeah, and from from this this point we can talk about some details. For example, my suggestion is that authentication is always a separate uh, module because that that authentication mm -hmm. will be later used for each of your projects and it will be in a library. If not, it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, because it, it will be only a separate uh, separate module in your app. Then my another suggestion is to create a so-called, at least I call it a signed-in module. And that signed-in module is basically uh, your whole application. It is just uh, that at the beginning, if you are not signed in, you decide whether you go to that signed-in module or to, to that authentication module. And that signed-in model will have the logic uh, with all the user permissions, and there will be all there will be uh, other lazy loaded feature modules connected to that signed-in module. Yeah, and then then also another big topic is <laughs> the state management. And I think this is one of the the most crucial things because. Uh, also, from my experience, a lot of people use either NGRX or no state at all. And this is this is very sensitive thing because, again, NGRX uh, is very robust thing, and it has a big boilerplate. Yeah, we need we need to admit that it is good, of course, but it's good for big teams. When you are when you have two to three front end teams, it's very good to have this NGRX because you have one structure. And you are used used to the system that maybe the development will get a, a bit slower, but it, it is consistent. But if you have a smaller app that where where you are two to three developers, you have a, you, you can use uh, or you can benefit from some easier solutions. Yeah, you can even use uh, some typed behavior, typed behavior subjects, which would be stored in a service facade. And that subject would be uh, would be basically would hold the, the data structure uh, to the same level as your view does, and uh, and uh, and from that from that point you can just use uh, your async pipe yeah, and, and you are done. And also <laughs> also when you are using the behavior subject, it is very easy to recognize whether you need to do some data update. So when you destroy some component and come back, you don't need to reload your data from API. It's it's a very very easy thing. Yes. So, but when you are using this behavior subject, the development, from my experience, is maybe from fifteen to twenty percent faster than if you have the NGRX. Because the problem is that on a smaller project, if you are using the NGRX, you need to think strongly about things like: Is my property loading? Is it in edit states? And, and to, to small met metadata, you need to store them somewhere. And usually uh, in smaller projects, everything is done in very big speed. And then you don't have time for these decisions. And then the NGRX become, become very badly managed. So it's a bit contra contraproductive. So basically, there are a lot of points which need to be covered upfront for my. Experience. Funny that you mentioned that because 
the last episode that we recorded was with Ayash, and we were talking exactly about that. <laughs> so we had the la the entire last episode <laughs> nice. discussing uh, some native, like not native, but uh, a seed solution that you can build and reuse for your projects in terms mm -hmm. of state management or just go directly with NGRX. And Ayash was explaining the solution that she created. And every time she starts a new project, she starts with that uh, base structure for state management. And this does not use NGRX, um, but it does have a, yes. a simpler way to manage state. And then later on, um, sometimes the company chooses to migrate to NGRX. Well, a lot of times they don't, and they just keep this mm -hmm. seed project due to the simpler... Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also there are, there are other things, yeah, because if you are using NGRX, and at the same time you have a test coverage policy on front end, it's a little bit... It isn't, it's a little bit complicated to uh, to have all the tests for your effect. Because for effects, you need the marbles. Mm -hmm. And again, I remember that, that the marbles, that there, there is some mocked RxJS, which has been changed during the last three years, I think two or three times. So on each update, you need to rewrite all your tests. And I'm not sure if, that's it, if this is really a good direction. <laughs> I agree, I agree. Yeah, because um, honestly, in, in the architecture the, point of view, you need to you need to think also about unit tests. Yes, yes. Um, I don't so, know if you looked into it, but one of the best things that I've done, what that my team has done in our projects, is to use NGRX data instead of vanilla NGRX. I don't know if you looked into that, but it's really interesting because that means that we don't have to create so yeah. much boilerplate for every store. So we don't have to create yeah, yeah, each exactly. individual yeah. effect it's, it's, and then mock uh, test for each effect. It was from last year, I think. Yes. A much cleaner approach. So if you want to have test-driven development with NGRX from the beginning, if you're using something like NGRX data, it gets much easier on your side. De de definitely. But uh, to, all two things are... Uh, are like uh, after after four years of intense work on front end, I realized that this world is quite complex and there is a lot of things which can go wrong from the beginning. And then then it's really uh, it's really very hard to to refactor it because some say that yeah you should when you do our, when you are doing the refactoring you should do it like step by step. But this step-by-step -step approach is usually not really possible. Like even if uh, I was in, in some work environment where uh, I had alloc allocated time for refactoring, I knew that I, I, I just need to do it like at once because the step-by-step -step is, is simply not working. <laughs> so, and, and this can be very tricky because uh, when, when everything is everywhere, then, then it gets very, very bad. And re regarding regarding this test-driven development, uh, there are 
like on front end, there are a couple couple question marks. And the first question mark is whether uh, whether you need some some per some percentage of test coverage. Because in my in my opinion, you don't need to have like 80% test coverage on front end because most of the tests would be click on button, the button was clicked. This is not something you really need. Uh, this will this, this will be it, it will just take time to to maintain it. What you need is to test your facades and your validation services, your helpers, your utilities, and this is enough. The rest will be covered. But then. Uh, you don't have the test, but then you cannot have test-driven development, but you can have something, uh, I call it method-driven development, and it's basically, uh, I write, write a method name before I start, start a new feature, like I simply download all the methods, and in comments I write the return value. Yeah, and then I start developing it, and, and with that system, you can be quite efficient, it's fast, and you are it's more or less the same as test-driven development without the need of maintaining everything. Yeah, I think our test-driven development is always a debating topic. Like we should uh, allow that, like we should uh, use that in our component or not, because it depends a lot of things. I think in real scenario, a lot of times you will not know all the things before before deploying. Like you'll experiment with something then come up come up with the with the approach so yeah any any type of uh, testing uh, for u- unit testing can be i think from front end test development uh, the tdd is most i i i haven't seen much uh, company or team using that as 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 a practice like in back end so in back end it's a little easier to go yeah. with tdd than the also um, you were talking about the the testing for facades and state management. I would even go one step further on that. So, um, and I think this is going to be a popular topic because it is what I say in my most popular video so far. So the most popular video I have uh, is a video about how to organize front-end projects. And the insight that I talk in this video, that I say in this video, the biggest insight is to isolate your API calls. So, even I think that the this is relevant here because I think that even the state module can be broken into two. Because one thing is for you to manage the data yes. that is already cached in your front end and you just want to distribute that. And another responsibility entirely is how do you connect the front end to the back end, which when you create a new user, what exact uh, API route does it make the request to? What is the method used in this HTTP request? How the headers are allocated? All those things, I believe that they can be isolated. And I think I'll go even one step further and say that I think that they should even be framework agnostic. I see no reason for those things to be uh, Angular specific. You could even say, oh, it it needs to be Angular specific so that we can use the HTTP client. Uh, you can use the HTTP client and still make it um, framework agnostic. You just have to create a library that connects uh, the browser, the front end to your API. And then in your library, you can take the fetch function as an argument. I did that before. I created a library that when you instantiate the API client, 
you can optionally give it the fetch function. So if you don't give it, it's just going to use the browser native fetch function. But if you give it a fetch function, it's going to use the custom one. So what I did is uh, if I'm running my API client in an Angular application, I give it the HTTP client formatted in a, a fetch function. And then the API client internally uses the Angular HTTP client. So this way, you can even break the state module that we were talking about in two. You can have the API client, which is simply responsible for making connections to the backend and requesting and receiving data from the correct endpoints. And you can have another layer, which is your data management, your front-end data management, which then you would have the discussion between using NGRX or yes. not, or any other solution. But that way, I think it becomes even more decoupled. Uh, I fully agree. And as, uh, from what you said, uh, is that in this case, this API management would mean that you can have different front-end apps in different uh, frameworks, and they all will share uh, our services. Yeah, And this HTTP client or fetch would be just a variable. Yeah, it's, I, 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 I completely agree because this is this is the, the granularity which, which we need, especially for, for a big project. And and the developers need to learn and understand that this is something what we need. Uh, I have a friend, and this is a bit of a funny thing. He says that developers, sometimes we are a masochist <laughs> because we write harmful things which harms our colleagues. And, <laughs> and yeah, then we have headaches. But... When, but the, the reality is that when I had uh, junior colleagues which learned this uh, granularity concept, then they realized that developing new feature to such architecture is so easy. Like then, then it's then then everything becomes very easy, and and you know you know immediately what needs to be done. Also. If I come to a new project, which is uh, where architecture is like that, it takes me maybe less than one day to understand which functionality is where. In, com in comparison, if everything is somewhere, then, then it can be even six months. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the difference. And it's not just the overhead of the developer's understanding, right? It's also faster in terms of actual computing yeah. speed for development, because if you're using NX or Turbo Repo, any kind of monorepository uh, system, they will most likely have a way to build and rebuild only the part of the system that you made changes to. So if you have things in a more granularized yes. way, and you make a change to a single module, it doesn't rebuild the whole application. It just rebuilds yeah, that exactly. single module. So even for actual development workflow, it's much yeah, faster. Yeah, and uh, this is this is also another of the things. Like sometimes when I open Google Chrome and I have more, like I don't know, ten tabs, and I look on my RAM and it has six gigabytes, I'm not sure if this is correct. <laughs> If because uh, the modern technology uh, allowed us to become a bit lazy, <laughs> and uh, the this laziness is basically also killing projects. Yeah, because you can you can just start writing your random code, and after three or four years, 
you realize that even even a small change takes you uh, one week of work. So then basically it kills the project because you can you, you actually can bring your project to the point where it's not possible to maintain. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. And Marek, what advice would you have for the developers just joining a startup and trying to convince, uh, not, not convince in the bad way, not in a manipulative way, but convince in terms of explaining the reasons why? So how can a new developer in a startup explain to the business side of the company why the developers should take some time to decide on a better architecture for the project if it's just starting out or if it has already started out, uh, why? how can they justify to the business side that they need to stop for a little while and refactor that structure before it gets yeah. harder to refactor later? So... Um, and I'm trying to come up with something uh, in terms of the tech debt is not big enough that it became noticeable yeah, yeah, to the yeah, business side yet. So it's not in a terrible state yet, but it's coming to that direction. Uh, actually, it's it's quite easy. There are uh, there are two possibilities. The first is just you start a small talk with your management and you see whether they are open-minded or they have some structure. If they are open-minded, and you will explain all the arguments which are said here on or in your previous podcast, I think on 80% they will they will just take it and they will understand it. And also, I, I would recommend to show to have some example, yeah, uh, to have some small small project and some some example to to show it to them. And then very good metaphorical example is electricity in a house. So 
when the electricity is nicely documented and all cable is shown on a project and you need to do some change or you need to have a new uh, new light switch, yeah, then it's easy to connect it. But when you buy a 100-year house and you want to do some connection and you call three electricians and no one knows what needs to be done, yeah? So this is... <laughs> <laughs> you worked on the electrical in my this. mom's house. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, so uh, I, I was uh, I was living in Sydney for two years, and we were renting an old house. So yeah, that's <laughs> which wasn't documented. So yeah, and then the uh, other yeah, the way we figure out uh, sorry the way we figure out which circuit the fuses go to in my mom's house is we have somebody go stand in the room we're trying to kill power to and then we start flipping switches and they yell when it turns yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that. <laughs> I'm not even joking. The timing of this analogy was so perfect that 15 minutes before this episode, I was trying to use the microwave to <laughs> heat up my lunch and it wasn't uh, working because somebody is trying to fix the electricity. And I was like, hey, can you please just turn on the the power to the microwave so that I can use it? And they were like, I don't know which one is it. Let me go try some here and then you let me know. And we were like 10 minutes trying out mm -hmm. different connections until we made it work. So this this was the perfect timing for this example. Thank you. Yeah, but I have I have had the I have had the exact same thing happen with the code, right? Where it's like it's like, okay, I need to go add this feature or whatever, right? And so I'll go modify the code where I think the thing is. And yeah, I run my test and nothing changes. And so then I, oh, oh, it's actually over here. And uh, especially with my client projects, um, there's been a feature that, or a couple of features that I've been adding into these integrations that I've been writing for the last few months. And it's literally been um, one thing after the other where it's, oh, I just figured out that this was the thing that was holding me up to which, you know, somebody else on the team goes, Oh, I knew that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it took me two weeks to figure out what they could have told me. Yeah, in two exactly. minutes. And, yeah. and, and, and it's because the code isn't set up that way to give you the, the kind of information you need. What I think is in my, in my, uh, at the first job, I had an example of like, it was, it was a pretty uh, old project, kind of 15 year of project with JSF. And we proposed to convert that to Angular when just Angular came, just, just Angular 2 came. So that's So what my approach was like, um, develop a whole full application uh, with and uh, as a POC. So we put uh, uh, Angular as a front end and Spring Boot as a back end and showcase that how it's easy and how it's easy to tweak the, these things and uh, you. If you want to change something, now it's taking, suppose, a week and it will take a day or half a day to, to change and showcase. So then they agree and then the whole whole project changed to Angular and Springboard. So that's, I think, the better way to justify a business is to uh, give a monetary value. Uh, uh -huh. Then like, uh, okay, so this will going to save this much uh, a developer time and a, a developer mm -hmm. cost is this much and you are saving this uh, this many dollars yes but some that's, things that's are not possible to, to, to measure because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like measuring like 
if you are if you have some company and you have the billboards, you cannot really measure how much revenue it gives you, but it gives you the how mm-hmm. to say it gives you the, the the profit that if somebody new comes to the project, he knows where you are. And there are there are a lot, and also you are happy <laughs> because I can. Uh, I can get really frustrated on, when when I look on the code, and I can even even go away from such a company if they don't want to change it. But uh, mm-hmm. also also regarding the management, yeah, it it can happen that they will say no, I I won't give you the additional time, and they won't understand it. It can happen. Uh, then you have like two possibilities, yeah. If you want to stay in that project because you like it. I would just put higher estimates on everything, and I would I would do that architecture um, without uh, explaining it to the management. I would just explain it to the team leader, to my uh, software colleagues. And you, you, if 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 your developing team has this understanding, then you are basically safe. Because it can happen that manage that your uh, project manager is not your is not the manager of the app and he doesn't understand it and there is some higher hierarchy and it's hard to communicate this issue to the correct person. It it can happen. Then I would ju- just do it on a on a software develop on a developing team and I would just have higher estimate. And that's it. I am going to take a guess here. I don't know if that exists or not, but I think that somebody has already had this trouble in such a hard way that they created the solution. So I'm going to bet that the universe has created the solution that I'm about to say, which is, I think that there is a standardized way of calculating the developer onboarding in a project. So uh, something, for example, create a component, fix this bug, and create a service, I don't know, like a set of instructions that you would give to a developer that deeply understands the technologies involved, but may not understand uh, your project structure, gives to this developer and tells them to do those three things. So how long it takes for a new developer to do those things? So if you can create such a metric, and if that doesn't exist, it's probably easy to create in your company, in your project. So if you are if you did all the things that we discussed here, you're still having trouble with management, I would say try to come up with a set of instructions that you can give to somebody that doesn't work in your project but understands Angular and tell them to do those things. Uh, track how long it takes and then you give this metric to the uh, to the management side of your business and ask for this person to do the same thing in another project that is using this better structure. And then this other project can be a, a project from scratch or or something like that. Uh, and this way you can tell the business side, hey, a new developer joining the company is going to take this X amount of time to do those simple tasks that every developer will have to do eventually in this project. So this can give you a metric to show to them, which it can be kind of flawed because it depends on the person that takes it, but at least it is a metric. I think it's easier to to talk to management in terms of metrics. 
because that way, uh, that's how they would like to see all areas. Like not saying that in a in a bad way, but the easiest management ever is when all areas have some kind of performance metric that is quantifiable, and then you can simply uh, try to make that metric better, either making it shorter or if it's a good metric such as profit, then you want to enlarge that. So if you can translate your issues into metrics, I think that's a good way to talk to the business side. This is a like really nice approach. I really like this. <laughs> My approach has always been, I, I had clients that basically told me that I'm not paying you to write tests. I'm not paying you to, you know, fiddle with all the architecture stuff, you know, just, just cram features in. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that eventually wound up with, because I found that I could move as fast or faster doing TDD uh, with my projects. And so I just put the test directory under Git ignore <laughs> and then do them anyway. <laughs> That's genius. Yeah, it's, it's actually exactly as I, as I told before that you should do it anyway. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because this this good architecture is even is not only for for the project and for the company. It's even it's even for you as a developer. Like it it won't hurt you. <laughs> Otherwise, if something is wrong, and especially especially in modern JavaScript days, when you have a library which is uh, supported until some time and w- once someone decided that I'm not going to support this library, we'll use something else. But you have new Angular, which you cannot update because you are using that old library, which is deprecated. In this case, it's a must to have a perfect architecture. Otherwise, you you will go crazy. (laughs) Um, Let's recap some things here, Marek. Mm -hmm. So help me out if I miss something. Just because we we talked about so many things that uh, the audience may have some trouble trying to collect all the insights. So um, let's recap for a person that is just starting a new project or maybe uh, already has a project but liked our idea and so they want to separate their Angular application into modules that can be later even isolated in libraries using NX or some other monorepo solution. So uh, we talked about generic things that most applications will benefit from. So most applications will need a state module, which later can become a state library. And this will be responsible for managing the cached state that you have in your application and distributing that um, in a reactive way to all the consumers. We can also, so that's one. We can also have another, which would be a library or a module responsible just for the connection between the front end and the back end. It could also have the TypeScript um, definitions, the types for what you get from the back end and what the back end expects to receive. So we already have two. You In the beginning, you mentioned another one, which would be the yes. authentication module or signing module. So that one would be fully responsible for the authentication side of your front end application. And what else can we give for somebody in this situation. So they are either starting a new project or they want to use this structure in their current project, but maybe they don't know uh, 
how they should separate concerns. So we mm-hmm. already gave them three uh, things that are, are probably applicable to their scenario. What else can we give into advice of common structures that somebody yeah, if, can if, use if I can generalize it and start scenario. like from beginning, you should uh, you should start with answering on some questions. Is my application gonna be big, medium, or or small? Is it for a public, or is it for business to business cases? Yeah, and by, based on these questions, you need to decide. Like yeah, if it's gonna be big, if if it's gonna be uh, or medium and for public, I will use NGRX like official NGRX. I will have some at least a minimum of unit tests, and I will start. If if it's big, I, I will start directly with the monorepo because the things will come. If it's small, it's exactly uh, we will start with the small granular uh, modules, and we need to have in our mind that this model could be possibly. Uh, later become part of a uh, library. Uh, and another topic is to think about uh, also style guide up front. You have to install your prettier linter and how uh, strict TypeScript. And also, uh, I, I think also there is this uh, STSS architecture, at least. So you should think whether you will have some dark mode or things like this, because if your app will be small and you know that your app will be small, in this case, you might not have so, such a strict rules for SCSS and you could have random colors in your components, yeah? But if you know that your app is gonna be big, you, know, you need to also take care about your SCSS, but that's a different topic. And what about the feature modules? How, how can people break that down uh, into more granular, uh, structures. For example, let's say that I have a system and I have the users module. So I have a list of users in my system. I have groups. I may have uh, files, like uploaded files. Um, l- let's talk about a to-do uh, app. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's familiar with that. So you have tasks, uh, you have users, you may have groups or teams. So let's say that you have those three things, those three types of resources in your system. Users, Groups and tasks. Um, would you create a library for each, or um, would you just put all of them in a in this in the main uh, core application and not break it down in terms of feature, or would you break it make it even more granular? And inside of users, you would make maybe the some of the functionalities of interacting with users in a folder and the the actual visual components in another. So how would you make your architecture for mm-hmm. the feature modules in the case of yeah, a to-do like, application? Uh, basically, now I would start with uh, standalone components, which would be like feature standalone components. So we would have uh, tasks component, user components, and uh, what, what was the third? Uh, it was task users and settings. Ah, groups. Sorry, yeah. Groups. And, and then in in the in the uh, users, groups. I would have another uh, another uh, even more granular co- components and services which would be connected to the to the main. And in the uh, app level, we would have router which would lazy load these free uh, features. Like no no no, I I think I think if you are doing the app from scratch, I really recommend to start it with a standalone component. 
it has a lot of benefits and you the, the, a lot of, a lot of it will save a lot of trouble <laughs> and also also the standalone components uh, they push you to make uh, granular architecture and what about actual monorepo technologies do you have a favorite is the grand annex or do you have some other monorepo technology that you uh, this is a this is like? a good question uh yeah for for me it's uh nx and just because of the big support and they have uh, f- they have a lot of uh, things already in build and also you, you have some it, it's it is possible now to track your package json and the updates and the vulnerabilities and if something needs to be updated or if something is deprecated i think this is great handled it within uh, nx but now at the end of last year or in the middle of last year uh, the npm brought its own monorepo to be honest i haven't tried it yet but i think this could this can be also really great and also, I think Lerna and, and, and others are, are are good. I just don't have experience with them, so I, I cannot compare. You're talking about ah, NPM yeah, yeah, workspaces? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I played a bit with that. I don't know if it could compete with NX, to be honest, because uh, NX also integrates so well with the Angular uh, ecosystem that... Uh, NPM yeah, workspaces then. could never compete with that. What I can see happening is perhaps NX using NPM workspaces uh, yeah, to yeah. better isolate the individual parts of the monorepo. But I think that NPM workspaces uh, will never have all the features that um, NX has. But it's an interesting choice for uh, perhaps you just want to start it out. Perhaps you're not even coding mm-hmm. in Angular. My use case for using NPM workspaces was a library, just a just a node library. It was not for frontend. It was uh, actually it was for frontend, but also backend. So it was a utilities library that I wanted to create and I wanted it to work in frontend and backend. So any environment that had JavaScript, and this library would also have some helpers that I wanted to isolate. So I tried using NPM workspaces to isolate um, those two things. And it, it worked out well, but it was um, it was a bit of a pain to set things up and especially to make mm-hmm. the build process work because your one of the libraries needs to import a sibling and that doesn't necessarily works out so well with the build system that you might have for a single uh, library. So I think NX already deals with all that setup for us. So I think it would win. But I haven't checked Lerna, so that yeah, could be like, interesting. I, I think Lerna is maybe in, maybe uh, easier to set up in some cases, but it doesn't have such a big community. And also, re- regarding NX, it's good that it supports uh, not only Angular, but also React, Vue, and all the combination of Node.js frameworks. So uh, if you have, I don't know, React and Next, or Angular and Nest, or even if you have Angular and on backend Java or Python or whatever, and you are using some tool to export the types, it works, works perfectly. 
and it is very easy to set up. So what you're saying, Marek, is that uh, Lerna is more flexible than NX. So if you're using things that NX doesn't support, so for example, some parts of your application are outside of the JavaScript ecosystem. So you have, for example, backend microservices and one of them is in in Java, the other is in Elixir or whatever. So Lerna is a, a monorepo tool uh, no, that no, can no, no, integrate sorry. I, I was in that scenario Elixir, or am I wrong? Uh, with that. I, I mean, Lerna is, is maybe uh, easier to maintain when you have just a simple mm -hmm. Angular uh, apps or, or if you have maybe some simple use case, but I don't really have a big experience with, with it. Uh, it. It would have to be tried. And also, also there are there are still some issues even with with NX, for example. Angular is doing like most recently, uh, Angular is doing uh, updates every half a year, and I think now there was a problem that with Angular 15, uh, you couldn't have the most recent version of NX. We needed to wait. Uh, for the new npm package or, or or yeah so so those are but but i, th I think those issues are in javascript world over, overall so this that there's still there are still some troubles with the, with the updates it's not so consistent so this is something you you, you need to manage as well Maybe this is also one of the points that we uh, forgot to talk about when we were talking about the architecture, that it doesn't matter if you have React, Vue, or Angular, you need to have some uh, update plan. And you need to also have in your architecture, you need to think that each six month or each, or at least once per year you should do the updating of everything. And this is this is also mm -hmm. a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I think the easiest way will be uh, remove as much dependency as well. Like if you're using NX, you are dependent on NX. Yeah. But that's not the uh, like the actual way people are doing. But if you are, if you want to update as Angular is updating or React or Vue, then you should always follow their concept and not depends on other packages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's what most of the product company too like uh, i know one company they i was interviewing with what they are uh, what he asked me should i use this very popular like from backend i'm saying should i should you use the spring boot in in our uh, product or not so i said yes it's widely used is tested but what the approach he told that each and everything is should be developed by us so that you uh, know we are not depend at all with any any other any other things but but that's i don't see nowadays it's happening mm -hmm. or it should happen because um, all the packages are also pretty pretty good and um, like like the nx they are are doing but you might might be three four months uh, behind uh, the yeah. behind the latest release but yeah exactly to are also these things like you have two extremes like you said not updating at all, and having everything written by mm -hmm. you, or having mid-tons of other packages. With the packages and libraries, it's very, like, th this is the thing which I'm not even sure yeah. if there are some rules, 
it's maybe a little, it's, it's a little bit like uh, you need to be a good artist, yeah. And a good artist, he just knows, he just knows what he has to do. So even you as a tech lead or software architect, you need to understand like which packages to add and which uh, what what should be written by yourself. This is like a sixth sense or something like that. I'm not sure if it's possible to define how to decide on it. <laughs> like the craftsmanship yeah. of yeah. development or something. Yep. <laughs> uh, Marek, uh, before we we start to was... wrap things up, uh, I I have one one question. Um, so. Oh, by the way, sorry, Chuck. You, you no, I was going to say I was about to start having us wrap up. So go <laughs> ahead, and then we'll we'll wrap up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry. Okay, let's see if we have time for just yeah. one more question. Um, so what I'm wondering is how are libraries shared between all the micro apps inside your mono repo? So, for example, if you start if you install Lodash. Like utilities library. Um, and then actually let's use RxJS since we're talking about Angular, I think that people will be more familiarized with that. So if you install, you depend on RxJS. Okay, but you actually have many sub parts of your application and maybe RxJS releases a new version and you want to, up to update to this new version, but can you do that part by part in, in your modularized architecture, can you update RxJS to a new major version in just one micro application inside your mono repo? Or do you have to upgrade in all of them at the same time because they're all sharing the same um, version of the, the globally installed library? How does that uh, work? It's a very good point. And when you have this question, like if any of your projects project starts to have this sort of questions, then it's time to move from monorepo to micro-apps. <laughs> because when you have micro-apps, then you can individually uh, then you can individually update every app as, as you want. In monorepo, I, in monorepo, mm, so, I think, so there is a, yeah. a difference in, in yes. this definition. So a monorepo you're sharing things you have uh different parts but they're sharing a global something in common that that is being shared and when you have micro apps then it is completely yes, exactly, isolated exactly. is that right and then basically uh your micro apps are wrapped in one dashboard app or something they are lazy loaded as well but, but the, the structure is very similar to monorepo but the, the difference is exactly in the in the package management and everything but yeah, this when, when when this becomes a problem, you you, you need to move to the micro apps. Yeah. Gotcha. But a good point. I, I almost forgot about it. I think if you have, if you have a lot of uh, small component, I think uh, if you have a lot of uh, small apps, it's always better to go with either micro apps or micro front end. So yeah, um, that will that will be easier in the maintenance phase later. Yeah. Also, I think uh, I think this topic, like uh, we, we talked about a lot of contact right. things, Thank you, and Marek. it brings the idea about having one tech lead or one 
not senior developer, but someone who understands this to the on a deep level per project. This is something which companies need to realize. So companies need to realize that they need to hire architecture <laughs> right. for them. I completely agree with that. Yes. And how can they do that, Marek, if a company desperately needs to hire you? The co-base is all over the place. You're going to love this project. How can they uh, contact you? our email. <laughs> we can do the, the consultancy. If people want to follow you and just see, you know, what you're posting or working on or things like that, um, where do they find you? Like on Twitter? Or yeah, actually, I, I don't have, I really don't have a Twitter. GitHub. Yeah, so I, I'm using, uh, I'm using only uh, LinkedIn, GitHub, and uh, Medium for now. I think LinkedIn is, at least, uh, at least in Europe, it is more. Okay. It is a bit more comfortable for me to, to have everything only on LinkedIn. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it. Okay. And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. All right, well, I'm going to move us along. Um, now we did add the, hey, this is the stuff we've got going on, the stuff we wanted to let people know we're working on. So um, Lucas, what are you working on? Oh, wow. That's a great question because I am just starting a new course today. So I am starting a course on web animations. So if anyone is interested in that, they can go to lucaspaganini.com slash web animations. You can type this all together with a hyphen. I'm going to accept you either way that you type this URL. Don't worry. And then this course is not ready yet, but if you go to this URL, you will be able to join the waiting list 
And I promise that this is going to be a very accessible course. I'm not, I'm not planning on uh, making it super expensive or anything like that. And it will teach you the fundamentals of web animations. So by the end of this uh, small course, you will be able to uh, craft CSS transitions, animations, and also uh, JavaScript animations from scratch, confident about what you're doing. You will also be able to use libraries, but you will know how those libraries are being used internally. On top of that, if you just want some free content, I will be posting in the next few weeks some practice examples in my YouTube channel. Uh, so there you will be able to see me coding some animations uh, from scratch. So you can just check that out for free. So go to lucaspaganini.com. There you will be able to find a link to join the waiting list of this course. And you can also go to my YouTube channel from there and see all those free videos about me coding things from scratch with the pressure of you watching. <laughs> nice. All right, I'm going to throw mine in here real quick. Um, we've talked a bit about architecture and the book we're doing for the Developer Book Club on Top End Devs is Clean Architecture by uh, Robert C. Martin, Uncle Bob. Uh, he was on the call last week, our kickoff call for the book club. Probably will be there tonight. Um, and so, yeah, go to topendevs.com slash book club if you want to get in on the rest of that. Um, I'm working on getting the video posted from the last one so you can get caught up, right? You can see what our discussion was and what it was like. But yeah, pretty excited about that. We're going to be doing clean architecture through the end of January. And then we're looking at a couple of options for the next book. Uh, I had a few people ask me to do the Domain Driven Design by Eric Evans. And so I've been reaching out to Eric to see if we can get him in. So yeah, two architecture books, I guess, back to back. But we'll see how it goes. Um, and then, yeah, just uh, the other uh, few things that I've got going on. I have been doing some... Uh, coaching, consulting with some folks who are trying to get their career, you know, to kind of slide into the next level, right? Whether it's being in leadership or becoming a senior developer or things like that, um, that just feel stuck. And, you know, I, I usually help them get unstuck in that half hour, but then, you know, we have ongoing coaching programs that you can join. Um, so if you go to topendevs.com slash coaching, you can pick which level you want. Uh, one of them's one-on-one -on -one and the other one's a group coaching. Um, if you apply to either one, it doesn't mean that you're locked into that one. You know, we can figure out what's the best fit for you. But uh, yeah, um, getting some pretty good results for some folks. So uh, that's just another thing that we've got going on. And then finally, um, I've been putting together a directory of JavaScript uh, related um, resources. And I'm looking for folks to help contribute to that. And all I'm really looking for is, you know, helping find podcasts, blog posts, books, uh, videos, conferences, conference talks, and just get them, get the information into listings is all, is all I'm looking for. Right. Um, you know, nothing fancy. You don't have to be a JavaScript expert. Uh, you just have to be able to find it. I don't have time to go and Google all of them and, and find them all. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, let me know. Uh, I can just invite you and give you a content manager account on the directory. Um, and then, yeah, I've been working on tweaking the um, layouts and, you know, fixing the data fields and stuff on some of those so that you can find what you're looking for. But, yeah, um, 
right now I'm focused on podcasts and conferences, but we are going to add in like YouTube channels and stuff. So, uh, just, just keep an eye out for that. If you want the directory and yeah, feel free to come contribute if you want to be in the directory, because, uh, that's the other thing is I'm hoping to have things set up so that if we add something to the directory and you want to come along and claim it, right. Cause you're the author or creator. Um, that way you can maintain your own listing and, you know, put in what you need to. So that that's what I've got, uh, what I'm working on and what people can go participate in. Subrat, do you have anything that you're working on that you want to let people know about? Yep. Like I'm working on currently on a little bit on micro front end and try to make a videos on that, which is long pending for me. And, and also, also working on, uh, started working on Deno, like, uh, it's mm-hmm. a, Deno or Dino is it depends on who says what. So Dino land. So it's a pretty good, uh, good thing to approach like a secure way. No one, no other packages can hack your code, and um, that's that's the one I'm going on. And I'm pretty thrilled by uh, Chat GPT. I'm just checking it how we can use it to, uh, to do a better better web application if mm-hmm. there is some APIs or something but uh, it's a pretty good thing cool how about you Merrick anything you're working on that you want people to know about uh, yeah yeah <clears throat> well actually th- there are two things the first is that I realized that I really love mentoring uh, my colleagues and I love to show them some ways as a developer also like you like you mentioned Charles that a lot of developers are stuck and they need some push in some di- in some direction and and I think that I know what I need to say to someone like whether they should be only a senior developer or whether they should strive to uh, to something more to be some manager or something like that this is this is really useful and the second thing is that I'm currently I'm, I'm trying to run my own startup which is called Sayri, and it's a startup for organizations. So if you have a gym or a restaurant, you are able to manage your uh, stuff through that app. And your clients can, <coughs> sorry, your clients can register for an event, or they can, I don't know, book a table in the restaurant or, or whatever. So it's quite a, a bigger, a big thing. And employees of that company, they have also... Uh, their part in that in that app, so mainly two things. <laughs> nice. How can people find uh, your? It's not startup? online yet, so Mark? it will be possible only from February or March. But I will post it on LinkedIn definitely. <laughs> or like, or like email Marika or, or send send him a message. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will. I will cool. push it to the world <laughs> next next year. All right. Well, now we're going to do picks, and picks are just shout outs about stuff that we like. Uh, let's do it in the same order. Lucas, do you have some picks? Yes, uh, I do. So, in the last episode, I picked the Logitech Brio webcam, uh, which mm-hmm. is the one that I'm using right now. Um, I'm going to pick something here that is complementary to that, and it solves all my frustrations with this webcam. <laughs> which is that I didn't knew how to manually customize things on this webcam. So it was always using the autofocus, the auto white balance, the auto exposure. 
And I really hate that because for those of you that are watching us on YouTube or other providers that you can actually see our faces, you will notice that my background is completely black. I'm in my studio. Everything here is dark, completely dark, because when I record a video, I want to be able to target the lighting exactly to my face and I don't want it to bounce mm -hmm. on the walls or anything. So everything needs to be black. And my camera, my webcam doesn't understand it. So if you point a webcam to me in this environment, no matter how much light I have on my face, the webcam is going to think that it's still pretty dark and it's going to try to increase the exposure. And then I look like Michael Jackson with powder in my face and it just looks awful. So this is not a good way to start a meeting with a client. <laughs> uh, and I finally, <laughs> finally found a way to manually change those settings because Logitech advised uh, the buyers of those of that camera to install Logi Capture. But this software doesn't allow me to manually customize the exposure. And I've been just trying to deal with making the auto exposure work for me for a while now. And today, I finally found the perfect software for that. So the software is called Logi Tune. So because you are mm -hmm. tuning your settings, obviously, how come I never thought about that before? So if you install Logitune, now you will be able to manually set the settings of your Logitech Brio or any other Logitech webcam that you're using. So for all of you that are using Logitech webcams, highly recommend using Logitune instead of any other softwares that Logitech provides. Nice. All right. Subrat, what are your picks? Yeah, I think uh, the peak I have already said that is the uh, Dino Land. So I was about to pick that one. So I think the the new version already came, like 1.28.3. So just go and watch that one and try to use because as more people will use and the companies will try to grab that. And it is faster, like... Um, you don't need to install anything on the start of the application. It is secure. And somehow I, I liked it. So, so cool. I picked that one. Yeah. yeah, I've been wanting to play with Dino a little more, but I, I haven't had time. Yeah. Um, I'll go ahead and throw out some picks uh, that I have here. Um, one of the picks that I'm going to toss out there is um, a game. It's a card game. I can't remember if I picked it before. I need to just like keep a list so that I know. But uh, I do pick board games and card games like every week. Um, this one's called Antidote. And it's a card game. And uh, effectively what it is is uh, you... It's pretty simple. But you deal out the cards... Um, everybody gets to, you know, gets a turn and you can, you know, trade cards, you can pass a card to the right, pass a card to the left, um, or you can make people discard a card. And what you're doing is you have a bunch of antidotes in your hand, and then you've also got, uh, a couple of poisons in your hand. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to, at the end of the game, have the highest number in the correct antidote 
to the poison that everyone's been poisoned with. And, you know, usually have five or six cards in your hand. So, you know, just everybody takes a turn until you're done. And, uh, yeah, when you discard the cards, you discard them face up in front of you, unless it's an X card, which is one of the poisons or a syringe. And you can use the syringes to, uh, steal a card in front of somebody or steal a card out of somebody's hand. And I mean, that's, that's pretty much the whole game. It, you know, obviously there's some thinking and paying attention and, you know, seeing what people are doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun game. It takes about a half hour to play it. Um, it's a game that my kids can play with us. Um, board game geek, uh, weights it at 1.62. So like I said, it's a real easy game, uh, but it's a ton of fun and you can play it with up to like six people. So, um, yeah. yeah, you can get a group of people together and play it. So I'm going to pick antidote. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to that one. Um, a few other picks that I have. So, um, JavaScript picks is going to be hosted on a system called brilliant directories and I'll put an affiliate link into there. Um, just cause yeah, if you go sign up for it, then, then you can do it. Uh, I am planning on putting up another directory for angular at some point, but, um, I'm kind of fine tuning the process with JavaScript picks first. So once that's done, I already own the domain for Angular Picks. So we'll be doing that. I also own the domains for several of the other areas that we cover with their picks. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, and then my wife and I started watching the new Criminal Minds. Um, we've been getting it on uh, Paramount Plus. I don't know if it's on TV like proper TV or not, but it's on Paramount Plus and yeah, it has a lot of the same characters in it that were in Criminal Minds. It's Criminal Minds Evolutions, but we've been enjoying that, so I'm going to pick that too. Um, and I think that's it. Merrick, do you have some picks? Yeah, I definitely have one pick and it's that uh, since the summer I started to write all the notes down and I'm using Remarkable it's like ink tablet where you can write your notes and it has very good format. It, it mm -hmm. is like a, a bit smaller than A4 and it's actually like a physical book because the other e-readers were either too small or too big. And this is exactly as a book is very thin. You can, you can write all the notes. And when I'm thinking, I just, when I, when I had, when I have the pen in my hand, it allows me to, to think and to organize my ideas. So, I think it's much better than before when I was using some to-do apps or something like that. <laughs> so I definitely recommend Remarkable. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Merrick. Good to see you guys, Subrat and Lucas. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.